All right. Luke chapter 1, and we're going to read Mary's song. Anna, take it away. Yeah. So verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. And he has shown great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. And he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. In remembrance of his mercy, he has spoken to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Let's pray. Father, we come into this song recognizing that this is not just any song that's in a hymnal or on a PowerPoint screen, but this is a song that is inspired by the Holy Spirit sung through a young girl who's pregnant with the Messiah. God, she is happy in this song. She is glorifying you in this song. And here's my prayer, God, that we would, as we study this song, become just as happy and glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll wait for that to pass. All right, we're good. Have you guys ever been depressed, like so depressed that things that normally would make you happy just don't make you happy? I remember one Christmas season I was depressed. I'd hit rock bottom. And I was driving with my sister, actually. We were looking at Christmas lights, and uh, my grandparents wanted to show us all the lights around their neighborhood. And, and, And I told my sister, I was like, these are just lights. They're just stupid little lights that are zapping everybody's electric bill. I was depressed. Like, I couldn't find joy in life. Have you ever been there? In 1860, a man named Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was at the height of his poetry career. And Abraham Lincoln had just been elected as President of the United States. However, uh, his life was about to take a turn for the worse. Longfellow's life was about to spiral out of control. In 1861, his wife's dress caught on fire, and Longfellow was so badly burned trying to help her take the dress off that he could not attend her funeral. That Christmas... Wadsworth Longfellow wrote in his journal, he said, How inexpressibly sad are the holidays. It only grew worse. The next year in 1862, Christmas Day, Longfellow wrote this in his journal. He said, Merry Christmas, say the children, but that will be no more for me. The next year, 1863, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's son ran away to join the Union 
army as the Civil War was raging. Wadsworth, both a strong abolitionist who hated the evil of slavery, wrote against it, fought against it, also hated war. And it devastated him when his son came back badly, badly wounded in December. That year, he did not write anything in his journal. He was silent. He had hit rock bottom. However, something seemed to happen shortly after that, and it's almost as if Longfellow, after a couple years of being in depression, had enough time to really think about his faith and about the reality of slavery in the world, hatred in the world, about also this, this new movement that was picking up, that God is dead, that, there, that God is no more, and, and he began to wrestle with that. He began to wrestle with the reality of war. But it's almost as if something, something changed in his heart and, and he actually began to rejoice in the midst of the chaos. He began to come out of his depression and, and he was once again happy. Yet it was a happiness that was sort of framed with the reality of what life is. And he wrote a poem which became a song that many churches have sung for the last 150 years. His poem went this way. He said, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play and wild and sweet. The words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But then he goes on and by the time he gets to verse 6, he's, he's realizing the, the chaos that's around him. The racism, the slavery, the war, the bloodshed, the anti-God's movement of the day. And he says, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then in his last verse, it's a verse of culmination. He says, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Have you ever been happy? Have you ever had like this moment where you just are so filled with joy that you do something stupid? Not like sinfully stupid, but just like, like I remember a friend of mine, he was so happy one time and he was in my house and he jumps up, fists in the air like, you see this in cartoons, like woohoo, hooray, right? He actually did it in this moment of sheer joy. And we had low ceilings at the time, and he punches the ceiling with his fist, and he hurt his, he hurt his hand, right? Have you ever just, like, what makes you so happy to where you just, like, throw your hat or you jump up in the air? What do you do when you're happy? We, we, we sing songs. We write songs. You try your hand at poetry. You, you, you sing a song that you've memorized. You put words to something. You put a tune to something. And usually these songs that we sing, they have some kind of rhythm to them, don't they? These are typically songs that we can clap to and bounce to because we're happy. This is what we're looking at today. It's a song that is motivated out of joy. It's a song that you can clap to. It's, it's a song that's meant to be a song of celebration, a song of dancing, a song of jumping up and down. 
Mary has just received some news that has completely changed her outlook on life, and she is singing. This is a song that's called the Magnificat, traditionally, which is just the first word of the song in Latin. It's a song that has been sung in monasteries and churches. It's a song that has been sung in homes and read out loud together at Christmas time. It's a song of celebration. And it begins with this huge statement in verse 46. Let me just read this to you. It says, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. My soul magnifies. Everybody say magnifies. That's where we get the word magnificat, by the way. It's also a word that's translated glorifies, makes much of. How do we glorify God? Have you ever wondered that question? Here, Mary is glorifying God, magnifying God. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She's explaining to us, uh, to us her magnification of God. It's one of joy and rejoicing and celebration in all that God is. Question, how is it that Mary has gotten to this point of happiness, of rejoicing in God? It is my hope for you this Christmas that you are happy. Primarily happy in God. And that's my hope for myself this Christmas for my family, for all of us, that we are happy. Question, how do we get happy? How do we get to this place in the midst of, let's be honest, chaos all around us? Tragedies in the news. Challenges in your own life. There never seems to be enough hours in the day. There never seems to be enough money to pay the bills. People who turn against us. People who don't come through with promises. Like, this is the world that we lived in. And hold up, this is the world that Mary lived in. So we can resonate with her. If Mary were here, she would look at us and she would say, yeah, I have issues too. So how is it then, in the midst of this chaos, that we, along with Mary, along with Longfellow, can, can find happiness? Well, Mary actually tells us where her happiness comes from. Look at verse 49, 48. She says, for... Everybody say for. That word for is always a key word in the Scriptures. That means that what she has just said is now grounded in everything that comes after it. So what's she doing? She's magnifying God. She's rejoicing in God. Now here are the grounds by which she does that. This is, meaning this is the reason she is happy and rejoicing and glorifying God. So what I want to do today is I want to look at her four. I want to look at her grounds. And I want to see if we can apply that to our own lives so that we might have the same grounds to magnify the Lord this Christmas. Amen? By the way, this is the first of four sermons called the Songs of Christmas. We're looking at four songs in Luke 1 and 2. Brian Sessions is going to speak next week in Zechariah's song, Montreal the following week, and then Christmas we'll get together and we'll look at the angels' song. Let's look at Mary's song here. What is her reasoning? We can break this down into three different, three different headings. First, the mighty one has done great things for Mary. 
Secondly, the mighty one has done great things for many. See, I just changed one letter there. For Mary and for many. And thirdly, the mighty one has done great things as promised. That's what we see in her song. So she tells us, let's look at it. Verses 48 and 49, Mary begins to just delight in and tell us the the, the mighty things that God has done for me, she says, for her life. Do you guys remember what it was like as a youth to be noticed by someone? Like maybe it was that guy or that girl that you had a crush on? And you never even spoke to that individual. And then one day, just out of the blue, he or she noticed you. Do you remember that? You guys don't remember that? Oh, okay. Somebody does. Do you know what it, do you know what it feels like to be noticed? Or maybe you would say, well, I was never noticed. I know what it feels like to be not noticed. And there, there are too many... Teenage tears that are cried over not being noticed by some crush, right? I love the story of Rachel and Leah. Jacob, who, by the way, is the one through his seed, the Messiah is going to come into the world. Keep that in mind. Through his baby. And he goes to Laban's house. And there at Laban's house, he meets two daughters of Laban, Rachel and Leah, Rachel is beautiful. She's, she is, uh, catches his eye immediately. She's the younger one. The older one, who typically would be married off first in the family, does not catch Jacob's eye. He does not notice her. The Bible says that Leah had watery eyes. I don't know exactly what that means. But there was something with her eyes that made her just not appealing to Jacob. Maybe she had an eye disease that caused her eyes to water and redden. For whatever reason, she was not appealing. She did not catch his eyes. She was not wanted. The one who was wanted was the beautiful Leah. Well, if you know the story, Jacob is actually tricked into marrying who first? Leah. Through putting a veil over her face, the dad says, I can't let my younger one get married first. I've got to marry off my first one first. And so he tricks Jacob into marrying Leah. Jacob is upset about that. Can you imagine what it felt like to be Leah in that moment? Seven years later, as the story goes on, he does marry Rachel as well. Now, here's why I tell that story. Rachel and Leah now are bearing children for Jacob. Which sister ends up bearing the child of the promised seed, the one who's going to go on in the line of the Messiah? Anybody know? Leah. Correct. Leah. Think about this. God chose Leah to bear the promised one. And Leah, when she heard this news, she, she declares in Genesis 30, she says, I am happy that he has blessed me in this way. 
And she names her son Asher, which means happiness. Why was Leah so happy? It's because she was noticed by God when everybody else did not notice her. She was chosen and blessed by God, not because of intrinsic value, but because of what God has done for her. And we see this happening for Mary. Verse 48, it says, He has looked on me. That word looked on literally means noticed. He has, God has noticed me. Me, Mary. Who was Mary? He, she says, I, in this humble estate of a servant, Mary was poor. Mary was not one that you would look at and say, oh, she's, she's got it going on. She's got everything made for herself. She's going to do great things. We want to say that about Mary. She was a young girl, probably 14, 15 years old, and she was from poverty. In Luke chapter 2, verse 24, what do they bring, her and Joseph bring to the temple as a sacrifice? They bring two turtle doves. What's the significance of that? Well, in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8, what we see is that if you can't afford a lamb, God makes provision for the poor people to bring two turtle doves. They were living in poverty. They were not of high estate according to culture. She, Mary was not from Roland Park, right? She was from the hood. She was from nothing. She didn't have anything. Yet God was about to completely transform this young girl's life. Not because of who she is intrinsically, but because of what God is doing for her. Do you see, see what's going on there? So as she goes on, she says, all generations will call me blessed. Why? Is it because Mary is so great herself? No, it's because he has done great things for me. What has God done for her? Well, there's a baby in her womb. A little backstory here. An angel has appeared to her and said, you are going to bear the Messiah, the Christ. How is this possible? I'm a virgin. I can't have children. God is doing it. With man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are what? Possible. God has impregnated Mary with the seed, the promised one. Finally, he's coming, and Mary goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is, is pregnant with John, John the Baptist, right? And as Mary comes into Elizabeth's presence, the baby in the womb of Elizabeth jumps He's not even born yet, and John, Jesus has such a powerful presence that, that the unborn infant John recognizes it instinctly and jumps. Elizabeth confirms what the angel said to Mary, and Mary busts out in this song. Everything is about to change. With this news and with this birth, nothing will be the same ever again. The next three decades will be the most important 30 years of human history. Mary is going to watch her child grow. And though this boy shares her DNA and even looks like her, she's going to begin to realize he is the Lord. And she will one day fall at his feet and worship him. Do you realize, friends, that God has noticed you? You're so concerned about not being noticed by your boss or by a certain friend. 
You're concerned about not being noticed by maybe a spiritual leader that you aspire to look up to or, 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 or by a mentor. Or maybe you have these pain and these scars of not being noticed throughout your life. Do you realize that God has noticed you? Do you realize that? I don't think you do. Does somebody realize that? Amen? God has noticed you. Who cares about everybody else? God has taken notice of me. God has done great things for me. God has done great things for you. And you say, well, hang on a second. Uh, this is, in the context, is just about Mary. No, it's not. Look at what Mary says next in verse 50. She says, and in his mercy, er, and, and his mercy, mean, meaning the same kind of mercy that he has shown me, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Meaning everybody from, from, from the year 40 to, to the year 1440 to the year 1940 to the year 2016. From generation to generation, every single individual who is a God-fearer, who has in faith turned to God in Christ, we are blessed and have been shown this kind of mercy. God has noticed us this applies to you. This applies to, this applies to Tim and to Montrell. This applies to Christina. This applies to us. God has noticed you. All right, going on then, then to the second heading. The Mighty One has done great things, not just for Mary, but the Mighty One has done great things for who? For many. As we read verse 51 through 55, what we see is that this is nothing short of a revolution. The coming of the Messiah is a revolution. I looked up the definition for revolution. Revolution is defined as a forcible overthrow of government or social order in favor of a new system. What we're about to see is a revolution. I googled, we need a revolution. And I came up with 42 million hits. We need a revolution in climate change. We need a revolution in renters' rights. We need a revolution in employers' rights. We need a revolution in America. We need a revolution of human life on planet Earth. We need a revolution in healthcare. We need a revolution of the mind. I could go on. We need a revolution. Everybody realizes we need a revolution. What Mary is singing about, what she is saying, is not that we need a revolution. But Mary is saying that the revolution has come. Let me say that again in case you don't get that. The gospel does not declare we need a revolution. The gospel declares that a revolution has come. Look at verse 51. He has shown strength with his 
arm. Arm throughout the Bible is a reference to the, the judgment of God. God's strong arm both protects the weak, protects His people, and both, both brings, also brings judgment on those who are rebels against Him and who are harming His people. God's arm has come. His arm is here. What has He done with His arm? Well, let's look at it. She just sings about the mighty works of God. It says, she says, He has scattered the proud. The, the proud, she says, in the thoughts of their hearts. Which I, I like that. Because a lot of people aren't proud on the outside. They come across as very humble. They come across as very meek. But God judges those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart, in their intentions, in their motivations. God scatters the proud, those who are unteachable, those who think highly of themselves, those who do not need the help of a Savior. God scatters the proud. goes on in verse 52. He brought down the mighty from their thrones. Now listen, check this out. This is past tense, isn't it? He brought down. But question, as she's singing this, is Rome still dominating Israel? Yes. As a matter of fact, in just a few short months, Herod the Great is going to try to kill the baby in her womb. Perform a mass slaughter of infants. How is it possible then that she could say that he has brought down the mighty? Well, I'm telling you, everything has changed. He's not even out of the womb yet. Yet these realities that are still to come are as if they are now. Those proud who are ruling these powers, who, who, uh, these people who have destroyed the weak and take advantage of them, he's knocking them down. And then he exalts another group of people. He lifts up another group. He exalts the humble, those of humble estate. The meek will inherit the earth. Remember with Jesus, there's a humility revolution that's taken place as well. With the coming of Christ, what we see is that what was once looked down upon, the, the, the humble, those people who were seen as just trampled on by society, those people who were seen as weak by society, those he lifts up. The greatest in the world, Jesus teaches us, are those not who are served, but the greatest are those who serve. Christians are humble. Christians are servants of the world. What, is it, what does it mean to be humble? It means to serve. What does it mean to be humble? It means that we primarily trust not in ourselves, but we trust in Jesus Christ. He goes on, she goes on in this song. He has filled the hungry with good things. And he sent those with great possessions away. 
Let's pause there for a second. He filled the hungry with great things. Well, I think there's a literal meaning there that we can understand. With the rule of Jesus Christ, where his rule is the norm, there is no hunger. Physical hunger. Where his rule is the norm. Meaning this, I think, I think the church is an example of this. If you physically, literally, go hungry, it's only because other people in this church don't know about it. I guarantee you. This church doesn't allow people in our church to go hungry, unless you don't tell us. There are tables all around you that will be open for you if you have no food in your fridge. Where God's rule is the norm, hungry bellies are fed. But then there's this deeper meaning to this as well that I think is really intended here. What we see is this theme of hunger is opened up and, and those who are part of the kingdom are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, it's those who don't have a hunger for righteousness that are then ostracized. They are the proud. They are the ones who are brought down. They are the powerful. But it's those who have a hunger in their belly for righteousness. I realize I'm a sinner and I need righteousness. I need to be saved. That hunger is the primary hunger that is filled with Jesus Christ. He fills hungry spiritual bellies. Why is it that people in this church crave the Word of God? Why is it that week after week you guys sit and you just listen to God's Word being expounded on? Why is it that many of you are in community groups, filling community groups with discussions and conversations confessing sins to each other? Why is it that you're in one-on-one accountability relationships and discipleship relationships with, with each other? It's because we are hungry people, and we're finding that Christ fills our hunger. Hungry bellies are filled, he says, but the rich he has sent away empty. The rich in the Scriptures, as we have been exploring with Jesus in Matthew, the rich is often a word that is synonymous with the wicked. It doesn't mean that every single rich person is not a Christian. That's over-interpreting what he, what's intended here. But the rich is a reference to those who are relying in their possessions, those who are trusting in their wealth, those who are relying in their degrees. Listen, Jesus doesn't care how much money you've got. Jesus doesn't care how many degrees you've earned. Jesus doesn't care about how many job promotions you can get. Jesus doesn't care about what kind of neighborhood you live in. Jesus doesn't care about what kind of house you live in or what kind of car you drive. It's those who put their hope, they find, listen, their happiness in their what? Possessions. Those are the rich. Listen, you don't have to be rich according to earthly standards to be rich in this sense. All you've got to do is put your happiness in what you have. Self-righteousness. 
we see these three categories of people that, that are brought down in this revolution. The powerful, the proud, and those trusting in their possessions. A couple quick application points from that. Number one, if you trust in Babylon, what do you do when Babylon falls? If your hope is in the kingdom of earth, what do you do when the kingdom of earth crashes and the revolution comes? Secondly, if you trust in your self-righteousness, what do you do when the righteousness of Christ appears? Much of our life is driven by fear. We, f- we fear pain, and so we cling to our possessions. We, we fear loss, and so we cling to our power. We fear being unworthy, and so we cling to our pride. How does this revolution works, work? This revolution works through casting out all fear. Those who are part of this kingdom revolution in Christ are people who have no fear. Fear is no more. We're no longer driven by fear. And so these things of power, possessions, and pride are no longer things that we aspire to because that was back part of our former fearful life. But we are new creations without fear. We have a great hope. Yes, we we can die. That's true. We can go hungry. That's true. So? You rise up on the other side of death. So who shall we fear? It, it, It is always shocking to me how we turn this revolution of Christmas into a feast of materialism. It's amazing to me how we, we, we turn this, this great revolution of the proud and the, 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 the rich and uh, the powerful who have been taking advantage of us, now brought down, and the poor are lifted up, and, and then what we do is we, we get in credit card debt, and we fill up our living room with, with wrapping paper and boxes and toys and stuff. One of my pet peeves at Christmas is when we call opening the present time Christmas. So Christmas is on a Sunday this year? We got to go to church on Christmas morning? When are we going to do Christmas? I know you said that. (laughs) Don't don't lie to me. No, we can't go to church. We got to stay home and do Christmas. (laughs) Isn't it funny how we call that this materialistic, like, thing. Christmas. Look, I am not like anti-Christmas presents, but I'm anti-materialism. 
I'm anti-foolishness. And I'm anti doing anything that would turn our attention away from the world that is to come and to place it on the world that is. Friends, let's be careful lest we turn Christmas into idolatry. Let's go on with this song here. So God has done great things for Mary. God has done great things for many And as we see this come to a conclusion, we see that God, the Mighty One, has done great things as promised. I had a friend once a couple years ago tell me that, that his entire life he's had promises broken to him. He was promised to go to the WWF match. Every year it came into town and he never went. His mom never took him. He said Christmas time was always the hardest. I would be promised that we would, that this year would be different. I would be promised that we would be together, that mom would be home. And every year I was dealing with failed promises. What gives joy in our hearts is when a promise is kept. The reality is that human beings often break our promises and that's why we're in utter chaos, isn't it? Our joy this Christmas doesn't come from another human being promising you something, but it comes from the promises of God. This is where Mary receives her joy. Look at it. In verse 54 and 55, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. He remembered His promise. They were in Egypt. Has God forgotten us? No, God has not forgotten us. He remembers His promise to deliver them. They are in the promised land. They go into Babylon. Has God forgotten us? No, He's not forgotten us. He brings us back into the land. The Spirit stops speaking for 400 years. Maybe God forgot. Maybe the Messiah is never going to actually come. Has God forgotten His promises? No. And here Mary is so delighted because the promises come through her womb. Promises are still made as the story goes on. Jesus dies on the cross. There's a turn in the story. He's in the ground. He's buried. Has God failed us? God couldn't beat the devil? Has God forgotten His promises? No. Three days later, what happens? Jesus rises from the dead. But then there's another twist in the, sto in the story. Jesus leaves. He ascends. We're not setting up the complete revolution just yet. But he leaves us with another promise, doesn't he? I will come again. We're living now in 2,000 years. We're living in the last day. We're living waiting. Hoping, expecting, anticipating His second coming. And in the same way that Mary was confident that His promise has come, that God is a common promise keeper, in the same way we can be confident today. 
just as surely as God created the world and just as surely as Jesus came into the world, God will keep His promise of the renewal of all things. The kingdom of heaven, which we are citizens of, where God's rule is complete, where there are no hungry bellies, that kingdom of heaven will one day come to earth. And the kingdom of man will be no more. Babylon will be no more. And all who have put their trust in Babylon will be dethroned as the revolution takes place. And we will live forever with God. We have a great promise. Where will you be, where, where will you be on that day? Are you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Have, has there ever been a, a, a moment in your life where you have trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation? Have you ever called upon His name and relied in Him alone, not, of, not, not by your own works? Have you ever cried out to Him and said, God, I need a Savior. I need forgiveness. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Trust in His work for you and you will be forgiven of your sins and cleansed from all unrighteousness. Turn to Him and He will bring you into this kingdom. And you will be joining the revolution as the kingdom on earth is now salt and light living as citizens of the, of the kingdom of heaven in the city of man. Standing up for the oppressed, standing up for the hurting, standing up for the weak. Trusting in God alone and waiting for the King to come again. As this story closes, you'll see in verse 56, Mary remained with Elizabeth for three months and then, he, then she went home. What's the significance of that? Listen, Mary was not married and she was pregnant. You think they're going to believe that the Holy Spirit impregnated her? You think they're going to believe as she goes home and as her belly grows that she's still a virgin? Of course not. They are about to reject the baby in her womb. Mary goes home to shame. Mary goes home to shunning. Mary goes home to gossip. That is the reality of Mary's blessedness. Wrap your mind around that for a moment. Being blessed in this world doesn't mean being accepted by the world. Being blessed in this world doesn't mean ease in this world. No, it means you're a revolutionary. It means you're a citizen of heaven in a kingdom of darkness. But Mary is willing to bear disgrace in order to become an instrument of praise. Are you, friend, willing to bear disgrace in order to become an instrument of praise? Are you willing to accept the reality that joining the kingdom of God being blessed by Jesus Christ 
will mean more chaos in this world. But do you have the hope and happiness of Mary? The point is, she don't care. She is happy. What does it mean to glorify God? Let me summarize this whole thing with giving you like a little formula, all right? Check this out. I wrote this down for you. This is what it means to glorify God. It's a formula. So math heads, get ready. Know the promises of God plus know your future in God. Those two things go together, right? Know the promises. Know your future. Equals relax. Everybody say relax. I had this like epiphany this morning. I think relax is a great word for trust. Relax in Christ. Stop stressing out. Relax. When we know the promises of God and we know that they're attached to a promise keeper and they're applied to us and we know our future is secure, we can do what? Relax. Chill out. And check this out. When you're relaxing, like when you know the work is done, Friday's over, you're good to go, and you're relaxing, aren't you happy? Relaxing, we're going to continue the formula, produces happiness. And happiness, as we see here, equals glorifying God. That's how you glorify God. You know his promises, you relax, that makes you happy, and you're glorifying him. That's what we see Mary doing. She is rejoicing, she's happy. And through doing so, she is magnifying God. Let me close with a quote from John Piper. John Piper said this, he said, It is good news to learn that we magnify God by rejoicing in him. It's good news because we are commanded to glorify God and magnify God. And this command could be a terrible burden if we weren't told that the only way to fulfill it is to relax and be happy in the mercy of God. This is what magnifies God most. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that we have a trustworthy Savior. We thank you for the promises that you have made for us, the events throughout human history, that have showed us that you are a promise keeper. We thank you for beginning the revolution in Jesus Christ. And we ask, God, that you would make us and make more people citizens of your kingdom who join his way of life, who submit themselves to his rule of life, and who live as salt and light in a world of chaos. We pray, God, that as we rest in these things, that we will truly relax in Christ, that our relaxation will produce happiness and through being happy and rejoicing in you, we will be glorifying you. Let us magnify your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.